All right, all right. Welcome back to another episode of A Little More Good. We are so very excited to be sitting uh, in conversation with our new friend here, Kemi Nekvapil. Thank you for joining us, Kemi. Oh, it is a delight to be here with both of you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, there's so many. Um, we've we've had the delight of going through your book, Power, A Woman's Guide to Living and Leading Without Apology. And um, I've really enjoyed also listening to some of the podcasts you've been on. So I feel like we've been in conversation for the, the past week or so. So I feel like this is just a continuation. Um, I wanted to hop in. There was one question that you asked um, on another podcast that you're on that really kind of stuck with me. And I wanted to kind of reflect that back to you and ask it to yourself as a as a jump off point um okay so i think it was on the um imperfect or um on those guys podcast yeah um, the imperfect the imperfects yes. um yes. so on our we we talk a lot about embodiment on this podcast and and trying to go from practice to embody experience understanding theory and and how do we kind of live that idea into existence and uh, you were talking about what success feels like in the brain, in the heart, and in the gut. And I really liked that differentiation between those three sections um, and how it was articulated. So I thought this is kind of a two-part question, um, but I thought we could ask, what does power feel like for you in the brain, in the heart, and in the gut? Oh, you have turned it around on me and you've brought it together. That's amazing. <laughs> okay, so what does power feel like for me? In my head, it feels calm because, and I think we'll probably get into this, you know, my definition of power and what I've written about in the book. So in my head, it's calm. There's no kind of spiraling. There's no anxiety. There's no, it's just I, I can be with myself. In my heart, my heart is completely open. And in my gut, I feel safe. Yeah. I like that. I like that. And what about success if you go through those three kind of experiences as well? Well, it's funny because I'm actually writing my fourth manuscript now and it's looking at success. Okay. And so I'm still kind of nutting that out. Um, But what I I feel like we'll have to do a part two when the next book comes out. Yes, absolutely. So I actually can't authentically answer that for you right now because I would want to go through the exercise that I go through the guys with on the imperfects to actually give you an authentic answer around that. Yes. What I do know for sure is that the success that many of us have been raised to believe we need to have is a form of success which has a lot of people be the opposite of mindful, the opposite of embodied and the opposite of authentic that I do know. Yeah. I, lo- I love that. Hearing even just that quick kind of uh, teaser for, for the next, right. the next book you're working on and even the next conversation we may get to have um, th- like the term that I was thinking when I was reading some of your work and, and listening and kind of learning about you, I was like, uh, Kemi is a disruptor. You're someone who sees structures and systems that are, you know, exist and maybe have existed in an unchallenged way for, for far too long. And you are someone who is coming along and in many ways, like pointing out what's obvious, but what has been overlooked and unseen and just kind of largely accepted, whether that is like Mm. you just shared a definition of success that is actually kind of doing the opposite of if we were to look at holistic success, 
It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's harmful to us as human beings and equally so with the idea of power and who has it and how we can stand in it and how we can even gain it by kind of letting go. I love the approach that you take that's kind of very subtle and nuanced and, and so fresh and challenging these kind of existing paradigms. Um, but one thing you said right away that, I, that I'd love to get kind of uh, to establish the conversation is, is your kind of working definition of power. And, and I know that you write about it in your book, power but can 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 we have you share it with us what's your definition of this term oh very happy to share and i do feel that i need to start with the actual dictionary definition of the word power because then it gives context to why this one form of power we've all been told is the you know one only power is so wrong um so the dictionary definition of power is the ability or capacity to do something in a particular way And it's so simple and it's so clear. And yet the form of power that most of us have experienced or we're witnessing around the world right now is this form of power of I want something and if I want it, you can't have it and I will do anything I can to destroy your power or any agency that you have. And because I'm so scared of losing my power, I will hold onto it tight and no one around me can have it. And so for me, the definition of power is completely opposite to that. It's if I feel secure in myself and if I'm secure in my sense of power, then I don't need to take your power away from you. I can stand alongside you, ignite your power, witness your power, um, elevate your power and support your power. For me, power is about this internal force that can never be taken away from us on a long-term basis. So I even need to sort of add to that when I write about power in the book, it's not kind of 21 days to power, you know, and by the end of it, you'll be this kind of crown wearing, I don't know, like I am the powerful. It's more a case of power will be taken away from us in different ways, on different days, with different people in different rooms all the time. And for some of us, that's with our parents. For some of us, that's with our children. For some, that's with you know societal structures around racism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism. There are so many structures that make so many of us feel broken. And so this form of power is those moments when we give our power away because we're smart enough to know the only way for me to be safe in this environment is to give my power away. But then how do we rebuild that power? You know, for those people that have very complex relationships with their parents, you know, you go and visit for Christmas or for the weekend or Thanksgiving, which is coming up for you guys. And it's like, and you leave feeling like you're seven again, even though you may be a fully grown adult. And it's like, how do you rebuild that sense of your own agency in your own life? So I break power down into five power principles, which are presence, ownership, wisdom, equality, and responsibility and being able to dance through those five power principles gives us a really firm framework in which we can take ownership of our power without apology. Today's episode is brought to you by AG1. We love AG1 because when we drink it, we know it is our foundational nutritional supplement that delivers comprehensive nutrients for the whole body health. AG1 really replaces all of your multivitamins, probiotics, and more in one simple and delicious drinkable habit. Its science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food source nutrients is going to support your health. We love it. We drink it every day. It's part of our morning ritual. We know that when we drink it, we've got our daily nutritional needs met. It has 75 high quality vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced ingredients. Honestly, I can't think of another daily routine that pays off as well as AG1, which is why I trust this product so much and literally use it 
every day. We love AG1. If you are looking for a simpler, effective investment in your health, try AG1 and get five free AG1 travel packs and a year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. All you got to do is go to drinkag1.com slash more good. That's drinkag1.com slash more good. Check it out, friends. I love the acronym. I'm I'm a big fan of good acronyms, and I love that power kind of created that that beautifully put together kind of stage of breaking it down. Um, yeah, meditation. Meditation was what brought that acronym to me. Actually, oh. I was the night before. I was kind of you know, I was writing the book, and I was like, oh, there's a structure to this book I haven't got yet, and I know it's in the word, but I didn't know what it was. And I, you know, will sometimes write on my notebook or my journal, put it down, and the question was where is the structure in the word? I think that that was the question, something. Went to sleep, got up, did my normal meditation, and it literally just fell, like I call the divine download. It was literally presence, ownership, wisdom, equality, responsibility. And it was, and I had to make myself not open my eyes and kind of go, Eureka, you have it. Like I still had to stay in my meditation. <laughs> but I knew that is it. That is the form of power that I'm talking about. What, one of my favorite powers that kind of speaks to this that you share in your book, um, the power of pause. And I think that can speak to the meditation, the space that you allowed for that acronym to, to come through you, the kind mm-hmm. of that download. Um, we're kind of in this, this phase. We've been in this phase as a society where there's been a lot of fear and scarcity and kind of um, getting stuck in a programming of, of powerless in a way. Um, so, Using the idea of pause, how can the power of pause bring back kind of that authority over self? Um, how can it bring back a sense of, of power to kind of dictate our own our own future uh, by taking mm. by taking pause? How can pause be a powerful thing? Yeah. So, you know, when I talk about because the power of the pause comes under the power principle of presence, And for me, presence is about giving yourself the time and the space to work out what is and is not working in our lives. And we live in a world where it is so easy to be distracted from what is and is not working in our lives. So let's have a look, kind of going maybe a little bit back to this idea of success. You can feel successful in yourself and then you get onto Instagram and you're like, oh, I thought it was working. I thought I was a success, but now I'm not because I've just seen somebody else do their thing. All this idea of what is not working can be so confronting to think, actually, I'm my well-being is not going well, or my intimate relationship is not going well, or my parenting is not going well, that there's a power in being able to stop to work out what are the areas of my life where I'm going really well. Because as an executive and personal coach, I cannot tell you the many the amount of clients that I work with who have no idea how to celebrate themselves mm. because it's never quite enough. They're never quite enough. It's, oh, and they keep moving the goalposts. And so there's never this kind of, oh, I I, I strove, strove for something, this strove a word. Oh, I, I think so. Help me out. I think yeah. so. Yeah, yeah let's, let's go, go with that. Yeah. Stroving. <laughs> Stroving. stroving. So they're stroving. <laughs> so they're striving for something and then they move the goalpost. Mm-hmm. And then they never have that sense of this is working. And then on the other side, when things aren't working, they're difficult. Once again, we have the distractions to never really be present to that. And it's only when we're present 
to ourselves and to the people in our lives that we actually can have the power and the agency to change what needs to be changed and celebrate what needs to be celebrated. Yeah, I, th I think that's such an important point is to say like not not necessarily to um, put down like this mindset of striving and continuing to go. Mm -hmm. And once you reach the milestone or the goalpost, to then to then say, OK, what's the next step? But to not yeah. miss the celebration in your achievement and to not minimize it because, oh, someone else might have their goalposts further down the line. Because I think that it's so easy. And in some ways, then a, a result or an achievement that might feel very empowering and make you feel like someone who has, has gained some agency or some power, then all of a sudden loses its power again, or it can be taken by that that act of comparison and then minimizing what you've created. And I just love that you draw attention to that. And like, you know, we might call them small victories or whatever, but celebrate these things along the way yeah. to practice yeah. being a person in power. Yeah. And there, and there are these really small things as well, you know, uh, are either of you parents? I don't know. I don't think I've heard. Yes. Yeah. You're, okay. How, how old? I've got two boys that are three and six. And oh I've, wow! And I've got uh, two daughters, nine, almost ten, and seven. <laughs> yeah. So right in the yeah, I, can, I heard her through you. Yeah, yeah. Only, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> nine, yeah. nine and three quarters. Yeah, she's always yeah, excited yeah, exactly. when we just finished like Halloween here, right? And so she's always yeah. excited because her birthday is in November. So she's like, okay, it's good that Halloween's done, and I don't have to be disappointed because my birthday's coming up. So. He's coming up soon. Yeah, that's yeah, right. That's yeah. so good. So she gets like a month long of eating lollies and sweets that's, and all those things. That's how yeah. it goes. Yeah. Yeah. But I think those things with parenting, which is such an opportunity for personal growth, you know, I think starting your own business and being a parent, they're, they're the ones, you know, they're, they're the ones where your spiritual growth is going to be accelerated. But there have been times, you know, I now have a 17 year old and a 19 year old who's now out of the home, but there'll be times in my parenting you know, the more I was meditating, the more I was kind of doing my own work where maybe my children would do something that, you know, was frustrating to me and I wouldn't respond as a reaction. You know, I would actually respond. And I would sometimes go into the bedroom and I'd be like, nice one, Kemi, good job. You know, they're the little things, but they're the things that build up. You know, it's not always the, um, you know, the promotion or you get the house that you want or whatever it is. It's like these moments where you are stepping into the person that you want to be. Mm. Why can't they be moments of celebration? That just that little pause to just go in the past, you would have maybe you would have shouted at them or you would have, you know, whatever, or, you know, done a power over over your children. Because the reality is when they're younger, we do have the authority over them. We can literally make them do whatever we tell them to up until you're probably noticing by <laughs> nine. <10. laughs> um, but then when we don't do that and we actually sort of pause and respond because we're focused on the relationship we want to have with our children in the future, that is worth celebrating. That is a powerful moment worth celebrating. Mm, yeah. I, I love the idea of celebrating small victories as it kind of builds confidence and power to kind of achieve bigger victories. Um, yeah. And then on the opposite side, I also, something that I've been working on personally is like giving room for, for failure, making space for failure so that it doesn't feel so powerless when it happens so that it becomes kind of a powerful opportunity to, to kind of reshuffle the deck or learn or um, kind of make space for that. Because I think in the past when I kind of hit that fail spot, it kind of seems doom and gloom or, you know, things start to feel impossible. Uh, but now I'm trying to give space for kind of both ends of the spectrum, the success and the failure, um, yeah. and kind of celebrate both pol both polar, polar, polarities. 
I'm having troubles with words today too. We're just going to make stuff up. <laughs> That's good. That's great. It's awesome. It's great. We can just be human together. I'm loving it. Yes. And I, and that's the pause, isn't it? That's the, you know, because I say in the book, I, I hate this idea of like, there's no such thing as a failure. Yes. It's like, yes, there is. Yes. <laughs> you know, and it's devastating and it feels horrible and it makes you question certain aspects of the world or yourself. But being able to pause and be in that moment is so much more powerful than pretending it doesn't hurt because that hurt is coming out somewhere with someone in some context anyway. So it's so much, it's safer for us and the other people around us that we may love to just be able to go, I failed, it hurt. It makes me think this about myself. I'm just going to sit in this for a couple of days. You know, I'm going to bed with ice cream. I'll see you in a couple of days. Um, And to give ourselves that pause allows us to then at the end go, okay, So now I've moved through that emotion and on the other side of that emotion is another emotion. Mm -hmm. But if we're trying to just numb the emotion, if we're trying to pretend it's not there, it still, it still sits within us. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that once again, that's true. It's the taking the time to pause so that we can respond and not react. There's something kind of along those lines that you said as well. um, Blaming other people can leave you powerless because I think often Mm. we want to point we don't want to take accountability for things that make us you know feel hurt or feel pain so it's easier to point fingers or you know create a why um that isn't inward isn't an inward why so can you talk about how blaming other people can leave us powerless 100 percent. you know i've been married now for 22 years and i have to tell you life seems so much easier when i just blamed my husband for all the <laughs> Well, it's usually our fault, so you probably yeah. weren't wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I'm not even necessarily sure if it's a gender thing in this case. I just think spouses anyway. Yes. I mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, but then when you, and it's actually my favorite power principle is responsibility. And it's, and it's my work as a coach as well for people to understand that we do have agent. We generally have more agency in our lives than we think we do. And we all have very different levels of privileges. And yet we still have agency in our lives in certain areas. So for me, that finger pointing, well, it's exhausting. One is never, one never feels powerful when they're exhausted. It is exhausting thinking that you blaming somebody else is what's going to change what is happening. And it can be a way as well, and it depends on the person, but it can be a way that you're taking away your own agency because it's their fault over there. So I don't need to do anything about it because it's them. It's them over there. It's their fault as opposed to, as Brene talks about, and I'm trained in her work, and we talk about in the Dare to Lead work, the question is, what is my part in this? What part can I own in this? Because the reality is, is that we co-create dynamics with every single person in our lives. And I'm not talking about abuse, so that I just need to say that caveat. I'm not talking about abuse. I don't want anyone to translate that into, if you know, if I'm in an abusive situation, that somehow I have a part to play in it. What I mean is it in, you know, just our normal everyday relationships, we are co-creating dynamics. And when we can go, actually, I can understand why they responded like that because I did this thing and that wasn't right. But also what I did wasn't right. So how do I, with responsibility and with agency, go back to that person and say, hey, do you know that conversation we had? That did not go how I had hoped it would go. I'm upset. You're upset. Should we try again? Mm-hmm. You know, that's taking responsibility. That's just saying, I'm a human. I got it wrong. We hurt each other. Can we try again? And, you know, that level of responsibility is a gift. It's a gift to be able to be in the driver's seat of our lives. Doesn't mean it's easy. It's not about meditating in 
you know, meadows necessarily. It can be really confronting. It can mean letting people go. It can mean being let go. It can mean putting back what generally does mean putting boundaries in place, which can be difficult, especially for women. It can mean saying no. Like there's a lot of work in the realm of responsibility, but it is always worth it. It is always worth it to be able to be in the world as who you are, not exhausted. Mm-hmm. I like that. And and in the in the section of your book, kind of on responsibility, I love that you have the just as a formatting note for people who haven't picked it up yet. First of all, you should. And I love that um, you kind of have like the, what you call like the the power process. So you can mm-hmm. look and it's some really good reflective questions. And even actually your Instagram is full of beautiful questions that cause you to stop and reflect and even just become embodied what did you eat last and how are you feeling now like they're so they're so great that's one of my favorite ones that's the favorite ones one of the jokey ones of like put down the last thing you ate and your mood and things like um exhausted taco and (laughs) overwhelmed chocolate you know i just (laughs) oh my god i'm an anxious eater like if i'm stressed or anxious i just like black out and start snacking so like my (laughs) my my mom knows about this so she'll always be like she'll look at me with like oh no like what's happening oh here we go yeah. <laughs> yeah, the mindless eating what's 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 eating you up inside yeah, yeah. nothing yeah but i love that in these in these kind of um they're, they're real tangible takeaways to to start to evaluate how am i using my power or maybe being disempowered or whatever it might be but uh, on that one of responsibility i love that you tie it in the book to this idea of core values and, and you know i teach uh, high school as well and i always am, am trying to invite students young people to to start to establish like what are the things that matter most to who you are. I mean, they may change over the next five years, but because that is going to help you have boundaries, which is something you you just spoke on and also have written on, and to kind of know yourself and to be able to make the moves on the chessboard of life or the journey of your life that will help you kind of achieve the things you you want to achieve. And and one of the things you said earlier, kind of tie it all together, is helping or understanding us, helping us understand who is it that I want to become. And yeah. when we when we can know that answer based in like our values and, and the things that are most important to us, then it becomes easier for us to maybe have boundaries and, and recognize situations where we're standing in places where maybe it's not the right spot for us or it doesn't feel right. Can you speak to the idea of like identifying and even your coaching practice, like helping people identify those core values and how that shapes um, kind of moving into positions of, of power as you have kind of redefined it for us? Yeah, because I mean, I think what's that what's that quote around if you don't have your own dream, someone else will fit you into theirs, right? You know, it's kind of the same with values. It's kind of like if you don't work out who you are, and what's important to you, the societal structures and systems will tell you and mainly that's like go buy things, you know, and there's nothing wrong with buying things as long as they're aligned with what you know, for me being a gardener and a flower farmer, I'm happy to buy plants and flowers all day long, but it aligns with what is important to me. I'm very conscious about it. And so it doesn't always work for everyone. Values work. But I would say the majority of people that I work with, it 100% does. And it is a a life-changing moment. And the caveat I always put in place is no one's allowed to say world peace. Although we probably I probably should stop saying that right now on this time. But And no one's allowed to say love only because the sorts of people that I work with, that's a given. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's a given. I work with kind people. Right. And, and conscious people or people that want to be more conscious of who they are and how they get to be in the world and how that affects other people in the world. But then this idea of values work, there's a lot of stuff around it in terms of what people think are the 
right in inverted commas values to have as opposed to the righteous you know the ones oh you know i i value kindness and i value some people value money and they value money because it gives them security and stability or it gives them freedom where someone else might say i value freedom and i love the work of really digging down with my clients and the audiences that i speak to around why is freedom important to you if you did have more freedom what would that look like right now if you were to take an action that would give you more freedom in the next 24 hours what would that action be and when i'm working with my one-to-one clients you know we might get to three values and i literally say them, i say play with them for a couple of weeks like literally just play with them when you find yourself in conversations or somebody asks you to do something look at your values through the question of exactly maybe what would courage do now or what would freedom do now and you know let's chat in a couple of weeks and see how you go and sometimes my clients will come back and go actually I was completely off. Like none of those values work for me at all. In fact, I kind of forgot that that's what I was supposed to be doing when I'm like, well, that's feedback. You know, if you forgot them, then they're probably not your values. Mm -hmm. Whereas others will just say, oh, I thought it was freedom, but actually it's security. And as you say as well, um, Zach, that it, they change, our values change as we change. Um, And one would hope that we do change because we are growing beings and we're not exactly the same and circumstances change. But I personally find values as such an incredible compass for my life. And I, the other thing for me in the work that I'm doing is that I am sick and tired of so many of us feeling broken all the time. And when we take the time to work out who we are and what's important, that sense of brokenness doesn't exist in the same way. Because we, it's that kind of the part of the book where I talk about being unapologetic and the ownership principle, taking ownership of our stories, our past, our present, and the future stories that we're creating for ourselves is so powerful. You know, it's um, it makes me upset and it makes me angry that there is so much money made of people being told again and again and again that they are broken, that they are wrong. And it's why in the book there are coaching practices because I don't know everyone in the world. I don't know people, not that everyone in the world is reading my book. That's actually, I should just say, <laughs> I'm not saying that everyone is reading my book, but it is. it makes us feel powerless when people tell us what to do with our lives, mm-hmm. okay? Unsolicited advice is not great. It normally leaves the person that is receiving the advice feeling like they're broken, there's something wrong with them. And uh, and it leaves the person giving the advice unless it's been asked for kind of like, I know how you should live your life. You just need to do what I'm telling you and everything's gonna be fine. And I know this because I used to be a helper in my younger days. And I would realize that I'd have these friendships where I'd say, well, if you just do this and just tell him this and just uh, it'll all be fine. And then if my friend didn't do that, I held this kind of resentment. Like, what is wrong? Why can't you just do the thing that I told you to do? Then your life's going to be great. Mm. And I'm glad that I kind of got that knocked out of me early on, you know, in my early 20s. Because then I was like, oh, this helping thing actually does not serve me and it doesn't serve my, it kind of creates inequality. And that's the fourth power principle, hey, equality. But this idea that if we give ourselves space, which is the presence idea again, we can work out what is the next best thing for us to do in in our lives. You know, I fully trust that we all have our own internal answers and do we need support from other people? Of course we do. If we didn't, I wouldn't have a job, for example. You know, we all need support from other people and yet we also have our own answers and it's empowerful when we can integrate both of those things mm. as opposed to outsourcing our lives to other people. Oh, well, that person told me that I should get up at 5 a.m. And that person told me I should meditate for 20 minutes twice a day. And that person told me I should run every single day. It's just like, okay, great. And what resonates for you? <laughs> what works for you? Because what do you tell yourself if you can't get up at 5 a.m. every day? 
What do you tell yourself if you don't go for a run every day? And this is where this kind of, I am broken, what's wrong with me? I'm not enough. If only I was more disciplined, if only I was more. I just think we just need to be very mindful about who we give our lives to because mm. they belong to us. I, I love that. I love that. Um, for those listening, you know, I think we can all think of an example when we feel powerful and an example of when we feel powerless. And when you're in a situation where you feel powerless, whether it's a relationship you need to get out of or a job that just feels, you know, like it's not uh, fulfilling you anymore. um, Is there a first step that you often suggest in regaining that power if someone's feeling like stuck and unable to see or feel their own power in the situation that they're in? One of my favorite coaching questions at the moment, and it just kind of goes through waves and, you know, there's kind of like an energy with the clients that I'm working with at a particular time or questions I'm asking myself. So this is one of those questions that it kind of can take a moment to click, but then once people hear it enough, they get it. So the question that I would say right now, actually there's three, I'll give three. So one of them is what is working in my life? Hmm. That's the first question. What is working in my life? And let's just say it's your intimate relationship. Please tell your partner. Like right now, I feel like our relationship is going really well because next week it's not going to be because that's intimate relationship. So you might as well just acknowledge those moments when it's going really well. And then to have a look at what is not working in our lives. And depending on who we are and where we are, sometimes that's like there's nothing, right? Like there's just nothing in my life that's working right now. And the power comes in the awareness because then the next question is, okay, so what and maybe what's the first action that you could take to maybe shift that and if nothing is going well in your life that may be i'm going to make the appointment with the therapist you know um generally i don't work with people where nothing is good because i'm not a therapist i'm a coach so normally it's like these areas are going well but i don't have clarity or i need support in this particular area but the question i've been asking a lot is what are you pretending that you don't know Mm. and to sit with that yeah what are you pretending that you don't know about your life. And some of the responses that I've had in the last few months are, I'm pretending that I don't know my job is killing me. Mm. I lo- I the lo- answers don't come in really, I'm pretending that I don't know that I am not in love with my partner anymore. Mm. You know, they're never, I think maybe I'm pretending that, I, you know, it's never that, it's always. This is what it is. This is what it is. Wow. Well, yeah, that kind of takes us to one of the sections: the power of the mirror. Um, that mm. was that was one of the sections that I really enjoyed. Um, I kind of, I think, any given day you can have a different relationship with the different sections in your book. But uh, today, the power of the mirror and the power of pause were the ones that were kind of um, sitting with me the most. Um, can you talk a little bit about the power of the mirror and how? we kind of need this reflection, uh, whether from ourselves or from others in our life. Yeah, 100%. And I also want to hear, Dean, why it it resonated for you as well. But I'll go first, though, if you want. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I can, for myself, I think what you pointed out there, um, like being honest with ourselves, uh, if if I sit in reflection, um, I think it's easy to, bypass hard things and just not acknowledge them um so i think for me pause and mirror kind of went together in some ways um they're kind of like stacking stacking powers to become you know going powerless to powerful um yeah yeah, no I, i think for myself i cannot always acknowledge um 
sticky points, you know, um, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll just kind of go towards things that are easier, but I need to mm. get into the sticky points to have more ease in general. Um, cause they're going to, they're going to stay sticky if I don't, uh, if yeah. I just, you know, leave it on the kitchen floor forever. Um, yeah, it'll get sticky and spread around the kitchen and yeah. And then, yeah, my, then my exactly. whole, then my whole life's sticky before I know it. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there is, there's kind of two ways of looking at the power of the mirror and the way that I speak about it in the book is that for me as a black woman navigating predominantly white spaces, I live, you know, I grew up in England. I was born in England and I was navigating white spaces for my whole life. I now live on Wurundjeri land um, in Australia, otherwise known as Melbourne. And I'm generally navigating white spaces all of the time. I am am married to a white, cisgendered, heterosexual, able-bodied Christian lawyer you know, so that's kind of, you know, that's that's who my husband is. And then I come from and, and his background and he can take ownership of his privilege is this idea of you are inherently right by birth because of the way you look, because of how, where you were born. Whereas I came from a foster child background where my kind of default story is you are inherently wrong. Mm-hmm. And so we've had to navigate that through our marriage in beautiful ways because it's been 22 years and we've learned from each other. But for me, the power of the mirror was just very rarely seeing people that looked like me doing things that I wanted to be doing. And so I share in the book a story of when I was in India with my husband and my family. Um, and I have been to India many years before to train as a yoga teacher. It's like 30 years ago now. And I had a not very pleasant experience in India for anyone that knows, you know, kind of the Indian culture, they have a caste system. So the darker you are, the less kind of respected you are because you're out in the sun, you're working your lower, lower class. And I remember going to a Ganesh festival, which is an elephant festival. And I was taking pictures of the elephants, but my yoga friend with me said, "Um, you might want to turn around. And I turned around and everyone was taking pictures of me and kind of talking about me and pointing at me, that I was kind of their elephant or their kind of amusement. And I had a pretty unpleasant experience. So when I then went back to India in 2020, I remember seeing this other black girl, like sort of walking towards me. And then she sort of, I sort of smiled at her and she kind of ran towards me and she said, hello. And I said, it is so nice to see you. She goes, I've been here. I've been here for two months. I haven't seen any other black women here. And I said, do you want a hug? She goes, oh my God, please hug me. Please mm-hmm. hug me. So we had a hug. Funnily enough, she actually lived in Sydney, which is, you know, it from Australia. So a black woman from Australia. And I wrote in the book that I knew what it was for her because she was me 30 years ago. You know, just trying to find that where is the person, where is someone that looks like me, this kind of anchor um, that makes me know that I'm okay, that I'm allowed to be here, that I belong here. And then in the book, you know, because I do a lot of leadership coaching, I talk about organisations where it is so important to have the mirror. And I think we're at a time, well, I don't think, sorry, I know that we are now at a point in history that if organisations don't have diversity within their workforces, it's because they're not trying hard enough. Mm. All this stuff that we can't find the right people, uh, like that is, talk about pointing the finger and blaming. That's like you don't have the structures in place to find the people. Because I know for a fact that there are black people, trans people, disabled people, neurodivergent people that want to work in every single industry in the world and they are out there but corporate organizations need to put the structures in place to make sure that those people are held and guided in environments where there is no mirror for them and then the other thing i say in the book is if you don't see the mirror then the reality is that you are the mirror that someone is looking at you you know i can speak as a black woman on stage and in australia we'll have an asian woman come up to me or a first nations person come up to me and say so good to see you speaking on stage. I'm so glad that you are here because it's given me the courage to, I don't know, send the email or, 
you know, travel around the world. It's not even it's given me the idea that I want to speak necessarily, but it's like you are doing something that I know as a woman of color, we have been told we are not allowed to do or shouldn't be doing. And because you're doing that, I'm going to do the thing that I have believed that I'm not allowed to do. Mm -hmm. So the power of the mirror is so expansive and so wide. Yeah, it's it's that's so good. And, and I just like that he, hearing you share that last little kind of anecdote about like the ripple effect, like we always talk about like the positive trail we leave, right? You know, mm -hmm. you can, I always say like you can imagine a boat going and like there goes the wake and it's washing up on shore wherever it is. And and knowing that we might not even know the effect, right? Because you maybe after after a talk or some some event, you, you may hear from two or three women, but really yeah. like it might be multiple people that are empowered to say, you know what? And they might not come up to you in the moment or whatever, yeah. but just to know, like we don't even know the impact that our actions can have and, and how important it is. You, you know, you write about uh, the power of taking up space too. And mm -hmm. that, that, that is like, uh, that is an important role not just for ourselves to come in and, and experience that but to make it okay and to make it you know uh, visible for other people to see oh man like not only like if this person can do this and maybe i could do something as well um yeah and and you shared uh, you shared about your husband and it it kind of tipped off a question that i that i wanted to ask but i wasn't sure because I, I know you know go for it we are go for it. we are not your target audience so to speak but what <laughs> what wisdom i i truly believe in the in the concept like everyone is our teacher and that you know people mm -hmm. that look like us right and, mm -hmm. and maybe in some ways align with who your husband is cisgendered straight mm -hmm. able-bodied privileged white men mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we need to put ourselves in a position of genuine openness and learning. And so, so for people who look like us and take up space, like we do in the world, mm -hmm. what invitation or challenge would you give to us around taking up space or understanding or seeing our power uh, and how we could potentially utilize that for the wow. ultimate good of, of people who, who are disempowered by historically people who look and are just like us. Yeah, 100%. Well, the first thing is doing exactly what you've done, which is to be able to own it and name it. Mm. You know? Because that's the kind of, that's where the white fragility comes from. They're like, no, no, no. But I, it's like, come on, we all have privileges. You know, I have privileges. I don't have race privilege and I don't have gender privilege, but I have a lot of privilege. And I talk about in the book that being guilty about our privilege is boring. Mm. It is unhelpful and it is not powerful for anyone. It just allows the people with the privileges to just kind of not do anything about it. And it, the people that don't have those privileges are never going to benefit from your privilege. I mean, how is that in any way powerful or useful? I think one thing that my husband and I speak about is that he was kind of born inherently and in and actually in the book, I don't know if you got to that bit where he writes a letter to me during the Black Lives Matter eruption, Black Lives Matter's eruption. I never want to say the start of Black Lives Matter because obviously it's not the start, um, but the global recognition of the movement. And my husband hand wrote a letter to me um, after I kind of got out of bed. So I was just sobbing for two weeks. I just I didn't know what to do. And he wrote me this stunning letter and I included it in the book. And I think you know, what he talks about is that he has been sung a lullaby as a white male and that the lullaby basically says you are inherently good and you are allowed whatever you want or not. You can just do whatever you want or not what you want and everything's going to be great for you. And he talks about that actually he knows that there's a discordant song that's being sung by so many more people that don't look like him. And although he was born into the lullaby, he's going to try and listen for the other song. For the, for the song that more people are actually singing. And so in terms of taking up space, I think it's just knowing that 
you know, one of the privileges that you have as white men is that you generally feel safe in spaces that you you are in, right? Not always, you know, obviously you probably still have, you know, anxiety and imposter syndromes and all those different things. But generally your experience, I would imagine, is that you can be safe in most spaces. So then to know that anyone that doesn't look like you has the complete opposite feeling. So then what is it that you can do to, if you're in a room and you just see there's a person of colour, is he that you just give them a smile or that you go and chat to them and don't ask them, where are you from? Like, please do not do that. Um, you know, but just go and say, hi, have you traveled, you know, have you traveled far? Have you been to this conference before? Or to just know that we're always working out those of us that are the marginalized person in the room. We just want to know, am I, I already know I don't belong here because there's no mirror of me. So I just, so the next level is, am I safe here? Like, am I welcome? And it takes for the people in the room that own the room to make other people welcome. Mm. And something that I do sort of same, same, but different. And this isn't for me to say, oh, I'm such a good person, but it's something about looking at what do we do with our privileges? So whenever I go into a public toilet and if the cleaner happens to be in there, I'm assuming, I don't know if this is true or not, that that cleaner did not want to be cleaning toilets. That was possibly not their vision to clean public toilets. But if they're in there, I will always say, thank you so much for keeping these toilets clean because that's one thing I can do. It's really small, but I know that so many people never acknowledge people around them that are doing the hard jobs all the time. And it's way that I get to elevate their humanness in some way and also being the privilege that I don't have to do that job. It's a it's a beautiful, powerful thing to to be seen and to see others. Cause to I, be seen. I, and it's so small. That's the thing. It doesn't take much. You know, even when I was raising my children and we'd, you know, come across a homeless person or something. Mm -hmm. And I would always, we would smile. It wasn't always about the money and it gets hard. It's harder and harder for homeless people now to be able to have some sort of income or any money coming to them because people rarely carry cash now. I think you have to consciously decide the way that I'm going to contribute is if I see a homeless person, I'm going to give money. My husband used to do that all the time. He'd always have cash in his purse and in his wallet. Um, but we just taught our children through modeling, not telling them by saying hello and having a conversation with someone that we would come across. And then once your children get older, they start saying, why are there people sleeping on the streets? Why can't we take them home? What we've got, you know, can they not come and stay at our house? Can And you have to have these difficult conversations. And because I had five different foster families growing up, I had one particular foster family where we were made to cross the street when there was a homeless person there. And we were told they brought it on themselves. They're all alcoholics, they're all drug addicts, and they're all dangerous. It took me many years to kind of unpack that story mm -hmm. and realize that actually any of us in any moment could find ourselves in a situation that we never dreamed could happen to us like many of those people and i know that once we look at young people on the streets the only reason they're on the streets is because being at home is worse yeah mm -hmm. how do you, you re know? reprogram those ideologies like if you were programmed to think this person is uh unsafe or they deserve this outcome You've been told yeah. this uh, and, and you start to walk on the other side of the street out of what you believe to be safety. How do you kind of reprogram these these modalities of thinking? So I think I had that story embedded in me until probably my late teens, early 20s. 
And then my early, like late teens, early 20s, I actually lived in, I grew up in Kent um, and Hertfordshire in the UK. So very beautiful kind of farmland areas, very sort of lovely. Um, but then I, I I moved to London. So then I was seeing more homeless people. So then I did what a lot of people did, which is kind of ignore people because they're, you know, I still have the thing of they're dangerous and I have nothing in common with them. And But actually one of my sisters started working at The Big Issue and she called, and I think everyone, you have The Big Issue in Vancouver, don't you? Do you have yeah. The Big Issue? Yeah. Yeah. yeah very so, um, yeah, she started working at The Big Issue and she called me one day. We were having a chat and she said, God, I met this guy today. And, you know, he was this um, leader, this manager in this organisation. And then he found out that his wife was having an affair with his best friend. And then he sunk him into depression. Then he started drinking and then he lost his job. And then he stayed on friends' floors for a few months. But then that kind of got a bit much because his drinking got too much. And he ended up homeless. And that was the first story that I'd heard of kind of how it happens. Mm. But he didn't do anything. He didn't do anything you know from sort of my from what i heard of that story just a series of events that affected his mental health which then had him be homeless on the streets so that one story didn't take long for it to flip because then i was like every single person on the street has a story every single person and they are exactly the same as me mm -hmm. and i have to do the uncomfortable thing of unpicking that story and see the humanity in them because actually then it grows the humanity in me which then takes me to a point that when i have children that is not the story that they are going to have and they're actually gonna um and but then it goes the other way because my youngest would come home sometimes and go and i say oh darling you're a bit late from school where have you been or oh yeah i was chatting to paul and dave and you know and i'd be like who are paul and dave oh they're two homeless guys on the corner of burke street and something something and dave is teaching me chords on his guitar right now now as a parent there can be that like <laughs> Who are these? You know, but also that I, me and my husband raised our kids to see the humanity in people. And um, my youngest was really into Tash Sultana, who's an amazing um, Australian artist. And Dave was teaching my youngest Tash Sultana courts. So they were really happy, you know. So we can recreate and re um, retell these stories. We just have to be aware of the stories that we have in the first place. Yeah, it, it, that's beautiful. And even doing that, like it, it gives power to people that typically you would look in society as a whole would say are powerless and wouldn't Nothing even, to contribute. Yeah. And yeah. and we it, it's interesting. I, I love that language, that kind of metaphor of the, the lullaby. It's like another lullaby yeah. that, that we're kind of sold to 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 believe which is like oh yeah no they're you know they're all this or they're all that whatever stereotype yes. you want to use and it divorces their humanity and it divorces yeah. us from them as fellow humans and when we flip that script and challenge it and see them as people first and knowing that yeah. any one of us is one or two unfortunate circumstances away from that potentially being us all of a yeah. sudden you don't just see them as as throwaway human beings. They're like actual human beings with stories yeah. to tell and things to contribute. Yeah, and that's what and we that's where we become each other. It's like not only does it does it take away their humanity when we do that, it takes away our humanity. Our hearts get very small and very closed in, and we just get to walk around the world with these blinkers on. Of that, you know, there's a phrase in Australia: like, "I'm all right, mate." You know, like I'm all right, so. I don't need to. And that is one of the, you know, Brene talks about this. One of the main indicators of privilege is not having to talk about hard things because you don't have to. Right. It's just not even a, it's like, I don't need to talk. I don't need to worry about that. It's not, doesn't affect me. And it's like, okay, but it affects most of the people possibly in, if you don't live in a bubble and everyone looks like you and you are actively and consciously trying to have a diverse set of people around you and not just ethnicity, but, but religion and age. And, you know, one of the things that I adore 
is multi-generational experiences. And we have this TV program in Australia right now, and it's what I call kind TV. I don't watch a lot of TV, but when I do watch TV, I want it to be kind. Like I just, there's so much horrible stuff going on. I'm just drawn towards the light. I just want to move towards, why I grow flowers. I just want to move towards the light. Um, but this TV show, it's actually called like Old People's Home for Teenagers. And it's maybe eight teenagers and eight elderly people in a in a old people's home. And you have them doing like depression scales of the old people. And you have them doing depression, depression scales of the young people. And then they basically go through this six-week program together. And you suddenly see how these teenagers who have anxiety and depression, spending time with 70, 18, 90-year-olds who have anxiety and depression and loneliness and isolation, and how these generations come together. Like I tell you, I'm crying. Like every time I watch it, I'm just, my husband going and go, baby, are you okay? And I'm like, they did it brilliant. <laughs> and, then, and now they love each other and he hasn't been hugged for 10 years and she hugged him. And, you know. <laughs> I got to watch it. I, I cry out like a good commercial. So I'd be, oh, yeah. I'd be Yeah, that's great. Isn't it? It's great. <laughs> great to live in a world with an open heart where so many of us have been told we're too sensitive and especially I would imagine it's one way that men get their power taken away I talk about in the book that patriarchy doesn't serve men either you know it has men live and operate in a very small box of what maleness is and I saw a couple of your episodes around masculinity which I'm going to listen to because I have a 19 year old son and um, who is a gentle who is a gentle, open-hearted man, you know, um, and is still very, very masculine and is still in himself and has his own sense of power, but it's from a place of kindness, not mm -hmm. from a place of power over. That's yeah. that's an important different uh, differentiating point there. Um, one thing I, as we kind of wrap up this conversation, um, you know, you spoke of your your flower farm and. Um, one of your your powers in the book is the the power of delight, and I think uh, when I see people in passion, when I see people in joy, it brings so much curiosity and happiness for myself just to observe that and to hear their their presence of of joy in that experience. So, just to kind of pass this down to our listeners, I was wondering if you could just kind of share a moment with your flowers, what that feels like, what that smells like, kind of the, the sensory experience that you have when you're out in your flower farm? Well, I'm very early stages in my flower farming journey. And it was it was something I never thought that I would be able to create or access for myself. I am in absolute awe and gratitude every single day and even my husband we were chatting the other day we're we're not permanently at the farm yet but we will be once our youngest finishes school which is going to be in 18 months and i said to him the other day i said i said could you imagine like i said isn't it still amazing that we this is going to be our home this is our forever home so i just cannot believe it he goes i can I was like, <laughs> and there we go and there it is <laughs> you know <laughs> but it's you know it's part of the comedy in our relationship you know what i mean it's just like but for me with the flowers, I kind of knew that I, I've been a gardener. My first foster parents were kitchen gardeners and my last foster parents were kitchen gardeners. So I, even when I got my first flat in London, I had a very small roof garden and I just made it into a little kitchen garden. So I've always been around soil and things growing. And I, you know, I still see a seed germinate and I feel as if I've never seen a seed germinate before. And this is where these moments of delight in nature are there all the time. So I'm going to the farm actually tomorrow. We have a long weekend here and all of my extended extended family are going to be at the farm for the weekend. And I know that my peonies 
I planted uh, like a um, experimental garden, one rose garden and one peony garden, because I know they're the flowers that will grow in the region that we're in. But you just kind of need to experiment and just see what gets aphids, what gets diseases, what are the kangaroos going to eat? What are they going to knock off? Do I need a fence? All of these things. But I know that tomorrow when I get there, the peonies that are only in bloom for about four weeks of the year, I think most of them are going to be in bloom tomorrow. And I'm already like I'm beside myself. Like I, I've already visualized me pulling up in the driveway and I'm just going to see if they're ready. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, flowers are beautiful. And I, you know, I, I am someone that stopped listening to the news maybe 10 years ago. I have one news source that I will check in with and it's radio. So I don't get any visuals. So it's like, what, two minutes, three minutes, just so I have an idea of what is going on in the world. But I really focus on my locus of control because focusing on the whole world has us feel powerless that there's nothing to do but what i can do is i can i inherited a daffodil paddock that has ten thousand daffodils and what i've done for the last three years is harvested those daffodils brought them back to the city and given them to all of my neighbors just just as a gift just given them because that's something that i have control over i can't do anything about the wars in the world but i can give beauty and joy to the people that I interact with in my day-to-day life. And that for me is the power of delight and that is the power of joy and the power of contribution and the power of community all wrapped up in flowers. Mm. (laughs) I love that, you know, and it's like one of those things where it sounds so simplistic and, and small scale. and, And even you said, you know, you can't stop all the conflict and stuff in the world, but if everybody chose to give, you know, literal or metaphorical flowers to the people in their community. I mean, the altruists uh, uh, among us wouldn't even have to pretend to state in our values, world peace. Like it would just be, it would be the air that we breathe because of these simple acts of, of kindness, neighborliness, all of this stuff. We, we titled our podcast a little more good. I love the title. Thank you. Good. Um, yeah. yeah, it was a it was a kind of stroke of brilliance that was uh, on a run, just yeah. like you said, kind of downloaded, and then yeah. uh, we just both knew it resonated so deeply that this is what we wanted to call it because in many ways it was just an extension of who we are and and, and what we strive to be in the world is is just to everywhere we go, every interaction, place, just to leave it a little more good. It's it's manageable, it's achievable, and and it kind of spreads this this uh this contagion of positivity hopefully around the world but um, i love that yeah that 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 image of of your your daffodils uh and handing them out to your to your community is i think in many ways an epitome of of that type of action um on top of the meaningful and deeply profound work you do with the books you write and the people you coach and and seminars and and, um, speeches you give um yeah truly truly a disruptor and a game changer when it comes to understanding power and how we can grow in ours or share ours. yeah and <laughs> yeah and and for me it is like the connection to nature you know we are nature and for me it's being in those spaces and obviously um trail running as well like it's just like i cannot believe i get to do this like especially when you find yourself out on the trails and there's no one else it's like i cannot believe i get to even if your legs are hurting and you realize you didn't bring enough food or whatever it is it's still this sense of the beauty and the joy and the delight and for me for the work i do it's like nature comes into me through the flowers through the gardening being out in nature and then i have an abundant resource of which to share and give to others and it's this cycle and then i give and then i go back into nature and it comes into me and then it goes out and it and it's just this beautiful cycle and i 
my hope is that I think a lot of people understood this more during COVID about getting out in nature and you know the garden how gardening just went off during covid and it's because we all inherently know that we are meant to be in connection with the land and some people don't have access to it they just don't we as a family would sit out in our garden and we live near a beautiful waterway in melbourne and we would all every day we are so blessed that we can that we have green spaces at our fingertips because there are people in high-rise apartment blocks that don't have the same access at us. So then we could think, well, we have this privilege, so we're just like not going to access it because, you know, for whatever reason, as opposed to no, because I do get to access this, how do I then access it and then somehow share it, whether it's with a smile um, or a kind conversation with someone. Mm -hmm. Um, There are so many ways that we can step into our power and step into a little more good. There we go. Well, Kemi, I'm so grateful for for you and your time and the message that you share. Um, As soon as I I tuned into one of your podcasts and then kind of dove into your book, I I quickly realized that uh, your work and your message is is something that I'm going to follow and and learn from for for this lifetime. So um, I'm I'm so grateful for you. Thank you for, for your time and your presence and the message that you share. And uh, I look forward to following your journey, whether that's uh, through flowers or the runs that you go on or, you know, the books and the words that you share with the world. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you, Dean. Thank you. It's been such a joy to be here with you both. And when I'm next in Vancouver, let's either go find some flowers or go for a run. Absolutely. We are in. 100%. Awesome. Great. Take care. All right. Thank thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.